Hello, this is Daniel Poppy, pastor at Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope this message will help you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so by visiting theroadfc.org and click on the giving link. So one of the downsides of our modern connected commercial world is that you're being marketed to all the time. There's power and there's money to be had by gathering people around your idea or your product. And we've gotten really good at marketing to you. I say we because I've been in the career of marketing for many years. We've gotten really good at marketing to you in ways that don't even really feel like marketing. You're being connected to on a very deep and subconscious level by marketers who are doing it good. (laughs) Think about it. Think about your phones. Think about your feeds. Think about your listening cues. Think about your entertainment, even your recreation. You know, you're being sold ideas and messages and products all the time. There's nothing inherently bad or evil or wrong with this. It's just kind of the way life is. And how are they selling these ideas to you? They're doing it through stories. They're telling stories. They're drawing you into a story. They're telling you your story so that you can say, yeah, that's my story. Oh, and this helps. They're using story. At one point in the not-so-distant past, advertising was pretty simple and prosaic. You know, a product had a short list of benefits and some specifications, and if they met your need, it was an easy sell. You'd just go buy it, right? That was it. And then the carpet baggers. Did you hear, you know that term? Like in the 20s, the car, these salesmen who would go around with these bags made of carpet, like carpet sides, and they'd be selling you like one little bottle that was, you know, supposed to do, solve all your problems, like one little tonic. It would grow your hair, it would get rid of your flu, and it would make you stronger. And it was nothing. It was water, snake oil. Nowadays, there's endless options, and in order for companies to cut through the noise, they have to market differently. So it's no longer just, here's my product and here's its value, benefit. They're selling you story. Take a look at this. This is a book by Donald Miller called Building a Story Brand. I've read it. It's a great book. If you have a message to share, it's a powerful resource. But listen to what's written on the dust jacket. If you use the wrong words to talk about your product, nobody will buy it. Marketers and business owners struggle to effectively connect with their customers, costing them and their companies millions in lost revenue. Right? You're already, gra- you're already grabbed. Millions in lost revenue. In a world filled with constant on-demand distractions, it has become near impossible for business owners to effectively cut through the noise to reach their customers, something Donald Miller knows all too well. In In this book, he shares the proven system that he has created to help you engage and truly influence your customers. 
the story, band, the story brand processes a proven solution to the struggling business leaders, the struggles that business leaders face when talking about their companies. Without a clear, distinct message, customers will not understand what you can do for them and are unwilling to engage, causing you to lose potential sales, opportunities for customer engagement, and much, much more. <laughs> In building a story brand, Donald Miller teaches marketers and business owners to use the seven universal elements of powerful stories to dramatically improve how they connect with customers and grow their businesses. He's proven, this proven process has helped thousands of companies to engage with existing customers, giving them the ultimate competitive advantage. Building a story brand does this by teaching you the seven universal points all humans respond to, the real reason customers want to make your purchases, how to simplify a brand message so that people will understand it, and finally, how to create the most effective messaging for websites, brochures, and social media. Whether you are a marketing director, a multi-billion dollar company, the owner of a small business, or a politician running for office, or a lead singer of a rock band, building a story brand will forever transform the way you talk about who you are, what you do, and the unique value you bring to customers. I kind of hand that up there. It really is a good book. Like, I'm using it as an example, but yeah, read it. <laughs> it really is a good book. Are you sold? No, Matt, we got a skeptic. Good. Well, whether you want to be or not, you're being sold. You're being sold to. And this is how it's being done these days. And it's for good reason. It's because stories work. It's because stories work. And do you know why stories work? Because it touches on a core universal truth about human nature and the nature of all creation. We were created with a story in our heart. We were created with a desire, a story, a Christ-like godly image in our heart. And as much as it may seem like a disconnect, marketing taps into that when it draws you into story. Our daily lives, our jobs, our agendas, our appointments, our spending, it's all driven by a story that we tell about ourselves. Or at least we want it to be. We want to know that we're part of something that has meaning and purpose. Even when we're in seasons where parts of our lives don't line up with the narrative or the story that we would like to tell about ourselves, we're so good at then weaving that into the story, right? Like we're just working this kind of menial job to make ends meet until we can do this. Or while we finish school, or while we keep kind of working on that side hustle until the side hustle can take over the part-time job that we don't love. Until the thing that we truly have passion about can take over. Stories drive us because that's how we're created. That's how our minds work. And Jesus knew this well. 
God knows this because we're created in his image. Today, as we ask ourselves, why did Jesus use story in sharing his message? Why did Jesus use the parables in sharing his message? That's what we're considering. Why does this connect with us so deeply? And why did the gospels, why did the gospel writers use parable in the way they did? Because, of course, Jesus is teaching and working all the time, and yet they pulled the narrative of his life and ordered it in such a way. Why did they do that? This is the way. Good job. Well, that's where we're going this morning. We'll be in Matthew 13. Before we read our scripture this morning, let's pray. Almighty God, in you are hidden all treasure of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Matthew 13 will be in chapter, uh, yeah, verses 10 through 17. Then we're going to skip down a couple of verses. It'll be on the screens for you. I'll begin in verse 10. His disciples came and asked him, why do you use parables when you talk to the people? He replied, you were permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those who listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. This is why I use parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. This fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah that says, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened, and their ears cannot hear. And they have closed their eyes, so they cannot see, and their ears cannot hear, for their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. But blessed are your eyes, because they see, and your ears, because they hear. I tell you the truth, many prophets and Righteous people longed to see what you see, but they didn't see it. And they longed to hear what you hear, but they didn't hear it. Jesus always used stories. This is verse 34. Jesus always used stories and illustrations like these when speaking to the crowds. In fact, he never spoke to them without using such parables. This fulfilled what God had spoken about through the prophet. I will speak to you in parables. And I will explain things hidden since the creation of the world. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So in this passage, really in all of the teachings of Christ, we begin to see, a, a, you know, kind of a, something that Jesus is repeating, a repeating theme that Jesus keeps coming back to. Jesus here is saying, he seems to be saying, that those who hear about the hopeful kingdom, the hopeful redemptive kingdom, fall into two categories. Those who receive and those who reject. Pretty simple. Those who receive the kingdom 
appear to be the simple, common folk of the community, the religious outsiders, the ones who didn't make the cut and go into Torah school or whatever. They might not fit the prescribed religious mold of the day. Think back to those who Jesus continually had meals with. They were generally the people that he was getting in trouble for having meals with them. <laughs> and then there's the rejectors. Those who appear to be missing the kingdom. These are the religious professionals, the prophets, the righteous, the teachers of the law, and the religious leaders. Yeah, all week I've been wrestling with this passage because when considering these two groups, on, at least on the surface, it seems I, I am in the camp of the rejecter because I am literally a religious professional. <laughs> Most of you would be considered the religious insiders because you've been here. You've been in and around the church much of your lives. And just like the religious professionals of Jesus' day, we would all confess that love of God and trying to protect and do what's right for his kingdom is, is our priority number one, right? I doubt that the Pharisees, when they woke up in the morning, were thinking, how can we destroy God's kingdom? They were thinking, how can we protect God's kingdom, right? This drive, this desire to be faithful to God's kingdom is what, it, what, it's what shapes us, it's what drives us. Our intentions are good, just like those religious leaders that we read about in Scripture. But Jesus is warning that something was just not working for these folks. And I've been wrestling myself all week with what is it? What went wrong? What caused these guys to clearly miss the point of what God was trying to accomplish in the earth? How did they get so far off course and not... Uh, so that they could not recognize the kingdom. And right in their midst, Jesus kept saying, it's right here. Just open your eyes. What went wrong? To the point where they were actually quenching the work that was happening around. They were actually working against the kingdom. What was the difference between those with their eyes open and the eyes shut? Let's take a quick minute for a history lesson. God's work began in the world very small and focused. Obviously, after the creation story, our scripture narrative gives us story after story where God identifies faithful people and he gives them a message or a blessing and he asks them to care for it, right? Noah, Job, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Deborah... Gideon, Naomi, Samuel, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Malachi. Like looking through the characters of our Old Testament. Obviously, the list is not exhaustive, but it demonstrates how one by one, God sought out individuals who would hear his call. He would give them a task or a message which he was then asking them to entrust and faithfully broadcast to the world. Messages of hope and blessing 
for those that God chose and those who were obedient to his commands. But also a message of a promised coming Messiah who would be the very incarnate nature of God, who would put all things to right in the earth as it is in heaven. There'd become a very structured, a very prescribed way in which God did things. It's all in the scrolls, right? All you'd have to do is read the scrolls. It was all in the writings of the judges, the kings, the prophets that God had anointed. By the time Jesus comes around, this history of God's work in the world had been thoroughly documented and scrutinized for generations of closely related folks to these main characters. And this is a critical point in the story. You know, since that last prophet we named Malachi, since the last book in the Bible, to the time that Jesus and John the Baptist, kind of this new wave of prophets, and obviously the Messiah, there was a 430-year gap. You know, we kind of lose that idea if we don't kind of remember it. There was a 430-year gap. The writings, the teachings, the orthodoxy of the Jewish religious belief had not really received fresh inspiration for 430 years. By the time Jesus begins his public ministry, 460 years. 460 years for the most invested, the most zealous, the most well-intentioned followers of God to draw conclusions, to interpret, to write prescriptions of how God worked in the world. 460 years of waiting for God to show a fresh move. 460 years of waiting for the promised Messiah to come and restore the kingdom. And one has to wonder, what were the Jews and the leaders doing during that 460 years? They're probably doing exactly what we're doing today. <laughs> they were probably meeting together to hear from the scriptures, to discuss the word of God in their own way, to worship together and to carry on the promises of God and the work. They were faithfully waiting for the fulfillment of these promises. There, were, there was also no shortage of folks who were raising to prominence. You know, each generation would have a new set of rabbis, a new set of would-be prophets, and the churches were there to hear and to scrutinize their teaching, holding them up against the historical example of God's work in the world to determine, is this person, is this prophet in or out? And from that, for that was the work of the Jewish rabbi. That was what it, that's what the rabbi were to do. They were to study the scripture and develop their own unique set of interpretations of what that scripture meant to be lived out in the world. To take what God had commanded and to say, this is what it means when you do this. But there was also very clear defined lines that could not be crossed. In the 460 years, there was do's and don'ts that were really developed. By necessity, the Jews had become experts at judging whether ideas and actions were in or out of alignment with God's law. Do you maybe see where we're going with this? 
460 years of reinforcing a set of standards by which one could test whether this was indeed a move of God. And now these appear to be the very people who Jesus is warning are missing the point, missing the message, missing the kingdom. Here's what I'd like you to hear. We must come to understand that if we're not very careful, we have a tendency to overthink, overcomplicate, and perhaps skew our understanding of what we think we know to the point that we've gotten off track. Let's watch this. Did you ask Jeremy to pass the popcorn? No. But why? Wait, he's like way over there. Just pass it on. Dude, last time we did a whisper train, everyone got sucked into a pyramid scheme. Please. I'm so hungry. Fine. Matt wants the popcorn. Matt bought the popcorn. Matt bought a newborn. Matt bought a baby Bjorn. Adam has bad breath. Adam has it bad for Beth. Wait, who's Beth? I am. I think I have a chance with Beth. Mm. Uh, what did Aaron say? I wasn't paying attention. <laughs> ask him again. But what did you say? I think I'm going to ask out Beth. <laughs> well? I forgot what he said. Jason's an idiot. Mm. Jason's an idiot. What are you guys like? We're sitting over there. I was, but I love the juicy gossip. Jason's a what? He's an idiot. I knew that. Matt wants the popcorn. Oh. Matt wants the popcorn. No. 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 Oh, no. 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 Guys, I can hear all of you. He said no. We have a tendency to, we must come to understand that if we're not careful, we have a tendency to overcomplicate, overthink, or perhaps skew our understanding of what we think we know to the point that we get completely off track. So the question for us today is, why did Jesus speak of the kingdom in the ways that he did? Specifically, why did he use parables to share its truth? And a second important question, how can we avoid the same mistake of those who were rejecting the message and the teaching of Jesus? Just like the 460 years of reinforcing what we think we know, and just like our tendency to skew out of alignment through the whisper train, we must be open to the truth. We must be diligent at keeping our eyes open to the, simple, the simplicity of God's message that the Holy Spirit reveals and works in us while we work hard to identify and reject our blind spots. We must continually be course correcting to ensure that we're not becoming misaligned off of the teaching of Christ. This is why Jesus used simple teaching and simple parables in his ministry. That's like the longest intro ever. I'm sorry. Here's the three points. <laughs> Creation points to heaven. With the Holy Spirit, the truth is in you. Three, don't overthink it. 
Jesus used earthly stories to lead our minds to heavenly ideas. He reminds us that God is at work around us all the time. And a primary place that we see this happening is in creation. Easily, my top five, maybe my top three passages in Scripture is Isaiah 55. It's perfect, I think. It speaks my heart language. Are you thirsty? Come and drink, even if you have no money. Come, take your choice of wine or milk. It's all free. Why spend money on food that does not give you strength? Why pay for food that does you no good? Listen to me, and you will eat what is good, and you will enjoy the finest food. But later in the passage, it says this, The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth, to cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word. I send it out and it always produces fruit. It, it will accomplish all that I want it to. And it will prosper everywhere I send it. You will live in joy and peace. The mountains and the hills will burst into song. The trees will clap their hands with joy. Where there was once thorns, cypress trees will grow. Where nettles grew, myrtles will sprout up. These events will bring great honor to the Lord's name. They will, they will be an everlasting sign of his power and love. Would that passage have been better if there was no nature references? I don't know. Maybe. Probably not, though. The prophet and Jesus and the truth of the kingdom is revealed around us, especially in the natural world. You know, we've talked about this idea before, but God has given us two books of Revelation. Of course, the written scripture, but the other book is the book of nature. The stories that Jesus told, the stories that we hear throughout scripture, they use natural elements. Things like crops and trees and seeds and fields and waters and winds. These are the elements that we connect with on a deep level, allowing us to understand the simplicity of the kingdom of heaven in a powerful way. Jesus used parables, specifically parables about nature, because the truth is around us all the time in nature, and it points to God. We know this without really having to try. It's in our core. Some of us, we feel the closest to God when we're outside, when we're on the mountaintop. It's not for everybody. Some of us feel just fine inside. <laughs> Some of us feel just fine inside. Some of us are allergic to grass, like the outside's trying to kill us. Like, let's go inside. <laughs> But the image of God, the Imago Dei, it's in creation and it's in all mankind. And it's good. And stories that remind us of its goodness, they help clear off the dust, the layers of stagnation that so easily obscure it. 460 years. You know, my parents and my siblings are all to the age that they're, they're starting to get cataract surgeries. 
<laughs> Have you ever known anyone who had cataract surgery? Eye medicine and eye surgery is amazing. Gratefully, I'm not there yet, but um, the miraculous results from these surgeries are almost overnight. My mom had just had eye surgery on one of her eyes this last week on Wednesday. And a text she sent on Friday said this, I'm also definitely noticing the colors are brighter phenomena, especially the blue sky is so much bluer with my right eye. With my left eye, it's like there's a dust storm going on. Four hundred and sixty years. You know, like removing a cataract that's developed on our eyes. Stories remind us of the image of God's goodness in all creation. And stories help clear off the dust, the layers of stagnation that so easily obscures it. There's always been a line in Christian thought, in Christian thinking, that the world and that really humanity in our hearts is altogether evil. And then it's up to God to fix it. Jesus held and demonstrated the exact opposite point of view. His teachings and the use of parables demonstrate that the natural world itself is good and beautiful, and it points to God. Now, again, there is an enemy. There is an enemy that obscures its beauty, corrupts it, can corrupt our hearts. But at our core, the Imago Dei is in us. The stories of Jesus help clear off the dust, revealing it for what it is. The truth is in you. Parables allow us to hear and understand heavenly values through concepts that we're already acquainted with. But then the parable, then Jesus helps transfer that understanding, that aha, you're right, I understand that. He transfers that onto areas in our lives in which we have a blind spot. That's what the parables did. One of our favorite biblical heroes is King David. He gave us the Psalms or many of the Psalms. His story is so relatable to so many of us. Arguably, he was one of God's most passionate and dedicated servants, and yet he failed miserably at times. You remember the story of King David choosing to stay behind in the palace when he sent Israel's troops out for war. And um, yeah, well, the idle heart, the idle mind, the idle hands have a tendency to become easily corrupted. He saw from afar a woman, he lusted after her, he pursued her, he secretly watched her bathe, he seduced her. And if that wasn't bad enough, rather than confessing and seeking forgiveness, he plotted and had her husband killed so that he could keep Bathsheba all for himself. David, his closest friend Nathan, watched all this transpired. He knew he had to do something. God had told him to do something. But how do you confront a king for his indiscretion without being shut down or worse, being killed? The Lord inspired Nathan to use a parable. Second Samuel 12, 
So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. And he raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. He ate with, he ate from his, it ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arm like a baby daughter. <laughs> so funny. Sorry. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing one of his numerous flock, he took the poor man's little lamb and he killed it and he prepared it for the guests. David, on hearing, was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man that would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one that he stole for having no pity. Then David said, then Nathan said to David, you are the man. The Lord of God, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if, you, and if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife for your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it in secret, but I will make this happen to you openly. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned. Jesus used stories or parables to open our hearts to the truth of the way of things, because we know in our hearts the truth of the way of things, the way things ought to be. We know this truth and we're convinced of it. Then Jesus redirects what we know to be true with certainty and he overlays it onto areas in which we have blind spots. We become blind. All the parables do this. We know how seeds grow. We know how yeast works. We know the value of the treasure, the pearl. Then to help us understand this is how the kingdom works in and through us can become an aha moment. The truth is in you. The Holy Spirit awakens it within you. And finally, don't overthink it. The parables that Jesus used, they're not allegory, where every subject and every object had a very specific, singular interpretation. The parables were given, yeah, they were given by the mind of God, perfect in every way, but the parables were given extemporaneously. Jesus just had an idea and gave it. And they were listened to, they weren't read. So in other words, their meaning was meant to be quick to understand, quick to perceive, as the Holy Spirit enables. Not something that takes hours of labor or study. 
a parable probably means what you think it means on first listening. The question is, what are you going to do with the truth? Not kind of make it mean something it didn't, but chase after that truth. William Barclay, author of the parables of Jesus, said it like this. The parables on the lips of Jesus is like a sword wielded to stab the listener's minds awake. Yeah. Has it ever felt like that for you? Reading scripture? All of a sudden, something in what you just read awakens your mind. Like King David having his transgressions laid before him in a story where the simple truth that the kingdom growing in you works like a seed or like, a ye or like yeast. The stories that Jesus told are meant to ignite our hearts. They should, anyway. But sometimes we have to work to clear off the layers of dust. 460 years. How can we gladly receive the blessings of the kingdom of heaven while protecting ourselves from falling into the folly of the rejectors? We must humbly open ourselves to correction and to guidance in our journey of faith. We must constantly return to the source of all truth, the teaching and the example of Jesus, while constantly filtering everything in our lives through the presence of the Holy Spirit and his work in us. Thinking way back to our series on the promise, we talked about the Spirit doing seven things, six things in us. The Spirit leads us to the truth. The Spirit leads and interprets God's words for us, guides our hearts and convicts us of sin, reshapes our thoughts and behaviors, making us more like Christ, empowers us to bear witness to and enact the kingdom of God, and finally, it unifies us with others. It takes humility and it takes community to do this right. We're not on the journey alone. We must be diligent at keeping our eyes open and our ears open to the simple truth of God, which the Spirit reveals to us. And while working hard to in identify and reject the blind spots in our thinking, we must continually be course correcting to ensure that we're not becoming misaligned with the teaching of Jesus. And you know how this most often happens? It happens through somebody near you saying, lovingly, you're just not listening. Here's what I'm observing. Here's what I think. And are we going to get defensive and say, I've been studying this for 460 years? Or will we hear? We need community. Let me share uh, in closing just a comment from um, a quote from Comment Magazine. This was a post that Melissa saw yesterday. She shared it with me. It's a miracle when we let ourselves in desperation be lowered into the unknown. 
It's a miracle when we see the needs of others and we decide to carry the weight of their stretchers instead of worrying about the groceries. God blesses all the people who bother with my complaints and worry with my heartbreak. The saints are those who press pause on the louder concerns around them because they've decided to remember what they would rather not forget. That independence is a sham. And it would be the greatest of all miracles to be the paralyzed man who gets off the stretcher, who hears Jesus' voice returning us to ourselves. We're healed and we're made whole. We came through the roof, but we walked out the door. Let's pray. Lord God, we confess that like the well-intentioned Jewish leaders, we have a tendency to assume we know what we know. And that's a good thing. That's not a, that's not a blight on the idea of studying and following and seeking understanding. But Lord, in this faith, in our walk, Lord, protect us. Protect us from ourselves at times who make false assumptions, who over time assume that we know exactly how you work and exactly how you do things in such a way that when you do a new thing around us, we can't see it. And Lord, most of all, Keep us humble and keep us connected. Draw us together. May we understand that self-reliance may have value in certain ways in our society, but community, the fellowship of believers, identity in the other is how you speak to our hearts so often. And God, help us not to overthink it. And as the Holy Spirit lives and grows and works in our hearts, may we fully understand and fully know you day by day, being correctable and being teachable. Help us to chase after you.